What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is David Newbold, and this is Porch Talk, and we're here in my backyard carport in Nashville, Tennessee, six feet apart, <laughs> and this is called The Long Road to Barstow. songs out of a bottle They were my only hope But I'll be damned If I didn't drink them down To the last note Falling off a bar stool Was all that I ever did I never gave a damn I just never had a damn To give Another boozy night going nowhere I hit the gas but I was moving slow Something in the road or something in the air Made me feel it was time to go Pick me up and lead me down the long road to bar Drum in my head I had a heart full of sorrow And a right foot full of lead And a radiator leaking Crack in the grill It was another night of drinking And mixing in Mixing in the pills Well I don't remember too much after midnight For what I didn't know Pick me up and lead me down the long road to Barstow 
Death Valley Motor Inn Well, I'd parked around the bag before I stumbled on in To my $30 room I put the smoke to the fire And peeling back the curtains I saw the blood Blood on the tiles Another boozy night going nowhere but I was moving slow I feel it in my bones They're gonna find me, Lord Who sent me to the devil down below Pick me up and lead me down the road Oh, pick me up lead me down the road Well, I'm a hat now Driving down the long road So uh, we're just going to start with, man, just uh, where you're from and growing up, and um, just what did that look like? You're originally from Canada, right? From Toronto. Toronto. That's right, yeah. And so growing up, man, like just earliest memories of, uh, you know, music, was it mom and dad's records or just in the car? What did that look like? Earliest, earliest was, uh, was uh, probably my dad and I would go out driving. Uh, he used to like to try to get me into playing golf, and uh, we'd go to his golf courses that he liked, and we would listen to Jim Croce in the car. And I, I dug me some Jim Croce when I was a kid, and uh, that's probably one of the first memories I have. Uh, my folks' record collection wasn't really something that, uh, you know, even now when I look back at it, it still hasn't aged well to me. I, I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can say that. But, uh, yeah, uh, Top 40 Radio, when I was about nine, was the first time I became cognizant of, like, pop music, you know, current, you know, rock and roll. I don't know, even at the time, if it was, I mean, I, I used to listen to the Casey Case from Top 40, and I remember uh, the song Come On Eileen, uh -huh. and that was, like, the first one that Come I heard. Come on, Eileen. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I was like, to me, that was always my... Uh, my sort of Beatles on Ed Sullivan moment, yeah. you know, not quite as seismic to the world, but to me, yeah. it really was. And uh, I, used, I used to start listening, waiting all the time for that song to come on, and then all the other songs at the time. And, uh, you know, that was probably the first thing. That and the, the Jim Croce car rides. Yeah. Yeah. And so just, I guess, growing up in Canada and, like, being immersed with, I guess... 
you know, the United States sound. Um, mm. Were there any just Canadian standouts early in your life that kind of stood out that kind of helped pave the way for you? I don't know about pave the way, but I mean, I was definitely into Brian Adams at that time. This was early, first half of the 80s, maybe. Yeah. So, uh, you know, cuts like a knife and stuff like that. And my mom took me to see him in concert when, we, when I was, I don't know, 10, 11, something like that. And, uh, you know, I was cognizant of the fact that he was Canadian. Um, I mean, Canadian radio had and still has a CanCon rules, Canadian content law, which means that I think it's 33% of everything they play has to be Canadian. Oh, wow. So there was, yeah, so there was lots of, you know, I mean, Gordon Lightfoot, of course, actually. My folks are fans of Gordon Lightfoot, so i got to give him credit for that. Um, he's Canadian, so I knew about that. And there were lots of Canadian bands at the time that were really big and that, you know, probably wasn't until years later when I moved to this country that I realized a lot of the things I grew up on seemed like universal things, were kind of Canadian mm -hmm. insulated bands like, you know, April Wine was one, Kim Mitchell, okay. people that were just huge stars in Canada, um, selling out arenas, mm -hmm. Canadian only, very, so, very omnipresent on the radio and TV there and then though. Yeah, sure. And so how were you when you started picking up a guitar? So, um... I was probably uh, about 14. Yeah. I actually started on the drums. Started on the piano when I was younger. I took piano lessons. Uh, got into drums was my first kind of individual excursion. Okay. And uh, was the piano was that going to be like classically trained lessons or? Yeah, it was reading music. It was like lessons you take when you're a kid, learning theory and yeah. all that, reading, learning songs, off sheet music, and then. Uh, Got into drums, built my own drum kit with frisbees, trash can lids. Got one drum, eventually got another drum, eventually built a kit. Uh, come high school, I had friends that played guitar. They would come over with their guitars and amps and we would jam. And they started leaving their gear over so they wouldn't have to cart it back and forth every time. And, and uh, I started uh, picking up their guitars while they were gone. And uh, it was a very short switch over. Mm -hmm. I'd say within about three months, I'd pretty much abandoned drums and decided guitar yeah, all was going to be it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why. I felt uh, I enjoyed the hell out of drums. I just, I guess, I felt like more instinctively proficient on the guitar, I guess, than the drums. Yeah. But you know. Alex Van Halen and Eddie Van Halen started the opposite too. Alex was the guitar player and Eddie was the drummer. I didn't know that. And Eddie started, Alex started playing the drums and he got better than Eddie really quick and Eddie said, well, I guess I may as well play the guitar. <laughs> and did he. <laughs> so like, man, like as you were uh, just starting to learn how to play guitar, who were some of those uh, influences as you got more proficient on it that you were kind of looking to as far as influence? It was, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page. Oh, yeah. Neil Young a little bit later. Tony Iommi. I was really into classic rock at yeah. the time. So it was all those guys, Mark Knopfler, Eddie Van Halen. You know, I really just wanted to play guitar as loud and, I don't know, 
I just was really into that. Pete Townsend. Mm -hmm. That was it. Just the great guitar players. Wasn't really digging too deep at the time, 14, 15. I was kind of just coming into learning all about the just classic rock guys. So Right. And so as you were getting older, just uh, just in high school and coming out, was uh, a lot of bands in your youth there, or what did that look like? There was some. Um, there was three bands in our high school that I remember that we used to play club shows with and every year at like the talent show we our bands would play um there's a band called the rustic gomers named <laughs> yeah. after like gomer pile there was a band called blue planet and yeah. they were kind of like the hippie jam band and then the band that i had with my friends called rock bottom and uh <laughs> and uh and there were other bands of like some older kids like we were 10th grade 11th grade and of course, there were some seniors, 12th grade. They're at that time, there was still 13, grade 13 in Ontario too. Some of the older kids had bands that seemed amazing to me. Mm -hmm. They played really well. Don't remember their names, but yeah, there was a few of us bands, and we would play some shows at clubs. And I wouldn't say there was a big scene. And I was never like a real social scene. Like I had my small group of friends, and that were it. That was it. And, and these other guys, like the hippie band, obviously. Every time they would play, there'd be like 75, 100 kids show up to them. Oh, yeah. My buddy, Pat Cook, I'm still friends with. He was the guy in that band. And, and uh, yeah, you know, but we started playing clubs in Toronto, just trying to get something going. And, you know, it's, it's hard to, at that time, create a vision for what, you know, I knew I wanted to be, make a living at it and be successful, but I didn't know what it looked like. The steps. I was just like, let's just try to get some gigs. And then, yeah. You know, I mean, I guess that's how everybody starts, right? So we just played around. But it's hard to keep bands together because not everyone's as focused in high school as, as I was necessarily. And right. You had uh, what? You had relationships, and then people were making plans to go to school, and then uh, work, and or whatever else it could be, right? Or just hanging out with their friends, and not everyone would want to rehearse all the time. And yeah. the drummer we had was the same. He was as focused as me for sure. But. Uh, yeah, in high school, I don't know, everyone's just going every which way, you know. I wasn't, but most kids do, most mm -hmm. people do. It's just normal, it's hard, it's hard to, uh, to find a, a pack like that. And even the other bands, they all seem to me to have the same balance of how much it meant to them versus how much everything else meant to them, which is why it worked, you know. I wouldn't say that I felt like those guys were as dedicated to careers in it, but they all seemed to have the same level of it. So they would kind of rehearse when they all felt the need to, and mm -hmm. they would, you know, it seemed to be harmonious. For me, it was always trying to get people as, as, as kind of, yeah, driven into it as I was. Yeah. And so, so uh, Coming out of high school and uh, just up into the early teen or late teenage years, early twenties, how long would it be before you made your way down here to the Nashville scene? To Nashville? Oh, uh, right. several stops along. Yeah, yeah. If, I, if I'm skipping too <laughs> far ahead, yeah. So yeah. What that just coming to America, I guess. Yeah, I first uh, I started going down to New York City. Okay. Right out of high school. When okay. I was finished. What What was going on there? What was you doing? Well. Uh, it was all brand new. I mean, I didn't know anybody except for some second cousins I had that lived there. I stayed with them for about a week. 
and I just tried to, uh, I just, I just kind of wanted to start, start my life there. I don't know, by that time I was sort of burnt out on Toronto, mm-hmm. you know, the bands I had it all broken up. I wasn't really, the, the music there was, it felt insulated to me at the time and I wanted to, I wanted to like take on the world, you know, mm-hmm. New York City just seemed to be the place. And all my heroes had gone right through there. So I felt like, what choice did I have? So I just went down there and started meeting people. I met a dude who also was from Canada, and he had a band. So the first thing I did was uh, was uh, start playing guitar in, in his band mm-hmm. called The Mercenaries. And I did that for a few years. I wasn't really writing any songs. I was just playing guitar. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just kind of immersed myself in in New This was early 90s. So it was kind of all about connecting with the history of all the people that I grew up at, you know, admiring and wanting to follow in their footsteps and it was kind of creating my own path. Mm-hmm. Learning all about different music that I was, you know, unfamiliar with. And just as a, in a city as big as New York, uh, finding those music pockets at first, was it hard to find that pocket? And you those know, people? I, I spent about a week walking around, just start, starting to kind of discover the place and I went to, uh, I walked by Electric Lady Studios, because like I told you I was a big Jimi Hendrix fan. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knocked on the door to see if anyone would let me in. They wouldn't let me in. So <laughs> I crossed the street, and there was a record store there. So I just went into the record store. And uh, they had some flyers on the wall for people advertising for bands and stuff. There was a guy who said he was looking for a guitar player, and he was into Bob Dylan and the replacements, and that might have been all it said. So I took the number, and I called the guy, mm-hmm. and it was as easy as that. And we went and met, and he was like, yeah, I'm from Canada. I said, I'm from Canada. And he was older than me by about six years, and uh, he seemed to have it going on. He had, he'd been there about a year, so he seemed to be dug in. And, he had some cassettes that he recorded with his band, mm-hmm. and I guess their guitar player had left. I don't remember why he needed a guitar player. So I just showed up with my guitar. No, I didn't even have an electric guitar at that time. Before I moved to New- before I left for New York, our house in Canada got robbed. A guy from my high school broke in. I know, I've known who it was since it happened. Broke in, emptied the house, took all my guitars and everything, and I had bought. I had a Les Paul that I'd bought on credit from a pawn shop in Toronto, spent like six months paying it off, it was gold top, cut Les Paul custom, you know, obviously my prized possession in my life at that time. Yeah. Got stolen, but we got a bunch of insurance money for everything, which actually helped fund my start and go down there. So I had to buy a new, so I, I didn't even have a guitar then, I just showed up and started playing his guitar. I was like, yeah, I'm into all those people, and we kind of hit it off, and I dug his songs, and so I went back to Toronto I think that was at the beginning of that summer. Went back, saved up some money. Maybe I had to wait for that insurance money to come. I can't remember how it worked. But yeah. anyway, the end of the, in the fall, I moved down. We started going down really regularly. And that's when, then we just started playing gigs. Mm-hmm. First gig was at CBGB's. I mean, that was cool. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Whole documentary on that now. It was just a place on posters, you know, that I had on like, you know punk band posters and stuff on the wall and so that was it 
first time, I remember the first time I went out and hung out with them, we went down to CV's and some other clubs, and it just felt like the first night of the rest of my life, you know. Right. I had that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It's like this is the beginning of riding the lightning right here. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, man, just like from New York there, how much time was spent, like, uh, for the rest of your stay there in New York? Um, it totaled almost transition. nine years. Totaled almost nine years. I, st I stayed there. This is... You know, I don't know how, how who's interested in how many details. I, I stay there. You know, New York City's very famous for a lot of people go there. They spend around a year. Like Levon said, you know, it kicks your ass and you leave. And then you come back, try it again. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened. After about eight, nine months, I was kind of burnt out because... You know, we were working day jobs. It was also out of high school. This is the first time I was working full-time jobs, too. And that was grinding me down just because New York's a grind, you know. Making very little money, living hand-to-mouth. I mean, it's kind of romantic in a certain way, but the gigs were kind of few and far between. And after a while, I was like, this isn't happening. You know, yeah. i got to try something else. So I moved. I went out to California. I just thought, San Francisco, that's going to be where it's at. So I packed all my shit, got on the uh, train, took the three-day train out to San Francisco, moved into an international hostel there. <laughs> yeah. Started trying to trying to put a band together. Uh, ended up street busking with a guy, and that ended up being what I did for a few months. And. Uh, that didn't really, I don't know, I got really kind of disillusioned with that after a while, too. I thought, how the hell am I going to do this? What's the plan going to be? And then I kind of bailed. I was feeling pressure from my family to go to college because I had applied for colleges and got into some, and I had put it, you know, whatever they call it, when you put it off for a year deferred, I did that. I said, okay, I'm going to go back to Canada. Like, this is, I'm out of money. I don't have a band. My songs, I'd started writing songs. They weren't, you know, they weren't very good. Uh-huh. I just couldn't put it all together. So I went back to Canada, to New Brunswick, which is on top of Maine. Spent two years going to school there. Had a good time. And then I started putting it all together while I was up there. I just, I just realized this is, this is not right. You know, I was doing well. I was becoming really independent. But it just it kind of crystallized more like, no, no, I, I need to be playing. I need to be playing. With these guys back in New York, I really realized how much I loved those songs and those dudes and that band and mm -hmm. it was no time not to do it. So I went back down after two years and ended up staying for about five or six years. Ended up leaving the band after a year or two because I started having all my own songs, lots of them, and I just started, started with, believing more in your process. Exactly. Your and by now I'm like 22, 23, so, you know, I'm feeling more confident in doing that. So I stayed, yeah. I. I'd say when I went back, it was about another almost six years, and and uh, you know, it kind of came and went. The cur the curve, yeah, the curve <laughs> the curve flattened, as as one might say in these current times. <laughs> we're on this is March twenty first, twenty twenty. We're sitting here six feet apart, wearing gloves, yeah. trying to keep the curves flat. Alan and I right now. That's it. Curve flattened. Uh, and I, I picked Austin, Texas. I just said, I said, now I'm going to move to Austin, Texas. 
you know, at that age, you just move somewhere. You don't know anybody. You just think, I'm going to start a new chapter. You just do it. Yeah. You know, so I just did that. And that's what I did then. And then I was there for about seven or eight years before I came here. Yeah. And so just uh, that music scene in Austin, um, I mean, I haven't, I haven't been out that way for uh, music at all, but it seems like it's a better place to kind of raise and nurture a songwriter uh, person, I guess, if that makes any sense. I mean, I, I know historically there's a lot of great songwriters coming out of that area. And I, I guess just the, the bars and the pubs and the places to play, it's more open to that, if that makes sense. I don't know if that's real. The New York City? Or, or yeah. then a lot of places? Or than New York, yeah. You know, I, I there were a lot of bands. When I first moved down there, I was surprised at how many bands there were versus just singer-songwriters. There were a lot of singer-songwriters. Which was cool because I was always in bands and I, I never, I never really wanted to be the solo singer-songwriter guy. I always, I always like being having a band. Mm -hmm. you know. I like them both, but Texas has a very rich history of some of the greatest songwriters ever. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, New York City's produced you know Lou Reed and you know. Carol King, people like that. My heroes that went through New York City went there, like I did. Yeah, they did Bob Dylan, that. Neil Young, Springsteen. He was close, but still, you know, they mm -hmm. weren't New Yorkers. Texas produces great songwriters and musicians mm -hmm. that are Texans. So that's the difference. Yeah. And it's an easier, it's a slower pace of life. I mean, just about anywhere is a slower pace of life than New York City. Certainly anywhere on this continent. Sure. Um, you feel like there's more time to develop things. People live there, they don't leave. Yeah. People go to New York, they stay for a while, they leave. Yeah. With rare exceptions. The only friends I still have up there are the ones that grew up there. They were born there. Yeah. So, it's in the air, it's in the water in Texas, because it's people that... You just go out. You go out on a random night, see someone playing. It's been playing there for 40 years. Yeah. Not necessarily at that club, but in Austin. Yeah. Touring Texas. Yeah, he's he's held that scene down. He's been a part of that scene for some time. Yeah. Who, who's that? I mean, just those cats. Oh, when you see somebody, you're right, right, right. It's yeah, like, like there was a guy W. C. Clark. I remember. I remember a girl I was hanging out with took me to see W. C. Clark. That's cool. Old blues guy. Mm-hmm. Really great. You know, find out he goes back to like 70s there, I think. And, you know, the credentials you find, the connections, relations that he had. Yeah. Are rich in history, you know. I remember playing at a club and there was an old, old guy in a wheelchair. The club was empty. There was, it was just way up in North Austin, like on a weeknight. There was a bartender, a few regulars, and this old, old guy in a wheelchair just sitting there. Played to them. Found out at the end of the night it was Pine Top Perkins. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's like where he hung out. They give you any kind of a review? <laughs> he didn't really talk. Not not really. He talked. I went up to him after. He just sort of said, Thanks for playing. You know. Yeah. So but I mean, learning about Willie Nelson, understanding it, you know, I didn't get it. Where I came from, country music was kind of a joke, I hate to say. Yeah. You know, 
songwriters was just the person in the band who wrote the cool riffs. Yeah. And the lyrics was all about cool lines. Yeah, hooks. Yeah. Hooks are just like a line that sounded cool, you know. Um, there was a great band in Canada at the time in Toronto called The Phantoms I really liked, and they had cool songs. They seemed like advanced to me for that, for what was going on at the time. In Texas, learning about Willie. I didn't take Willie Nelson seriously when I grew up. I mean, can you believe that? Like, I'm ashamed to say it. I didn't either. I didn't get it. I didn't know. Uh, I didn't understand why his voice. A lot of those cats that come from that era, uh, I remember just, you know, being young and riding with my dad at, uh, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old. It was cool because it's what my dad listened to. But when I was teenage, 15, 16, you know, I would hear that come on or somebody play it and be like, you serious? Yeah. Of all the things you want to play on your radio, you can play <laughs> yeah. this? Of everything. And, and now, like, looking back, I just want to, you know, it's like, that's good stuff, man. Well, it just wasn't in the air. You know, I, I, there would have been people, there, there would have been people that had discovered that up there, but I didn't know any of those people, you know. Yeah. I didn't know why Willie Nelson's voice was an instrument, why it, like, carried the Texas wind within itself, you know. Mm-hmm. All those, all the, a lot of the great country singers, you know, we would all have nicknames for them, like Conway Twit, you know, <laughs> or like, I'm trying to think of some others, you know, it was all just a joke. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not saying I'm the biggest country fan in the world, but I mean, it's a serious art form in its original uh, versions, and a lot of that comes from Texas. Yeah, I guess is what they call outlaw country now, it's the roots of country. Sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of those guys. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big Jerry Jeff Walker fan, but he was a migrant to Texas from upstate New York. But sure, Waylon, yeah. obviously, those guys. I didn't understand any of that, but I do now, and I do from Texas towns. Obviously, towns fans and like I don't think I'd ever even heard of them. Yeah. Before that, Guy Clark. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was an education. That was a serious education. Where all of a sudden I felt like. Songs had to, they were layered. I mean, Bob Dylan songs are layered and Springsteen songs are layered and, you know, they're still two of my absolute favorites. But that was abstract to me. Like, I didn't know, I didn't understand. I didn't know where that came from. I wasn't really big into literature beyond the things that I liked, you know. I didn't, you know, I was never like, I never knew much about religion Mm -hmm. to use, you know its structures as metaphors and references in songs, you know. I always, like, who, who listens to Bob Dylan and thinks, like, I can write like that? Like, nobody. He's, right. he's the only person that can sound like, write like that. But people from Texas, I sort of started to understand this comes from life, directly life around them, and the generations that came before them of, of uh, their family and their, their family friends. Mm-hmm. And that seemed like a way that seemed like a new element to work with that I hadn't really put together. Yeah. And so, I mean, how far off are you from this point to uh, in your songwriting of having a, that album put together and start recording? I started doing that in New York. I started putting okay. out EPs there. So what about that? your first album here? First album here, Tennessee? No, like... Uh, Oh, in the box? Yeah. I mean, the not, first... Not Sin and Redemption, but the, uh, what's the other one? The older one. 
Well, Tennessee was the one that I did here okay. in 2013. And then I put out an EP called The Devil Is His Name in 2016, and then Sin, and then Sin Redemption came out okay. last year. Okay, and then before that, we're talking New York doing EPs? Well, in Austin, I put out a few, too. I put out a, an album. The first full length I did was in Austin, and that was called Big Red Sun. And that was 2007, maybe. Okay. And I did a, when I left Austin, I put together a, a live DVD got funded by the Austin Music Network there and did a live DVD and a CD with all my friends from there. Before that, there'd been an EP. And then in New York, there was a couple of EPs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Starting in, uh, 98. First one, 98. Three songs. But I had all the, you know. I started, when I started writing songs, I started writing a lot of songs. And there was always a lot. And, you know, recording them was just whenever, I don't know, the first one, how I, I had a friend with a, kind of a home studio, so I was able to do a couple songs there. There was a school called, uh, well, I'm not going to say what it was called, because it was, it was cool. They would have people come in, artists, songwriters, that wanted to record for free, and it was basically you were recording uh, for a, 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 a recording engineer teacher and a bunch of, like, engineering, recording engineering students. You know, kind of like a guinea pig for them. It's be like seven weeks. You go in seven weekends in a row every Saturday, I think it was, something like that. Spend seven weeks recording songs for them so they could learn how to record, mm -hmm. mic, mix, all that stuff. And, then, and the, the guy who was the teacher was like an experienced, you know, recording engineer. Now he taught. I mean, it was a, it was a recording school, you know. And then at the end, um, they would uh, you basically buy the tapes from them on the, on the, on the DL. And so I was able to, so basically I was able to like track songs, so I said, okay, so I was able to track them for free. The mixes that came out of it weren't great, because it was just, you know, quick, and it was students. But then I was able to take the tracks to, a couple of them I took to my friend's studio, one I took to a studio that a friend of mine was making a record at, and I, and I mixed a couple of songs with that guy, uh -huh. and uh, able to somehow assemble it. He had a connection at Master, Master, uh, Ma uh, Master Disc, I think? like one of the big mastering companies in New York City and so I was able to get a deal and master it into a CD and just passed that around at gigs and sold it mm -hmm. somehow got to a guy who ended up managing me for a few years and then he wanted to record some new songs so we recorded those at his home studio and tracked it at a, tracked the drums at a friend's studio and just piecemeal you know yeah you know picked the best few songs I had at the time and all the other ones, just nothing ever happened. Kind of fell off to the wayside. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and so up to, uh, I guess after Austin, would Nashville come next? Yeah. And then I moved here. So uh, what led you here to Nashville? Same as Austin? Just new place, new chapter? No. Uh, well, you know, it ended up being that way. It ended up being that way. It wasn't supposed to be. It wasn't designed that way. I had a, I, uh, I started touring in Texas. I didn't do any of that in New York. I, I wish I had now. I wish that I had the. I wish that I had the. It just wasn't possible. I didn't have the. I didn't have a car. You know, I didn't have. I mean, I was just living it there. I, I just was working it. I just kept felt like, kept feeling like if I worked hard enough in New York City, I could make something happen. I could grow out of that. I, I kind of wish that I had the mindset to start touring more then, but I didn't. And so when I started doing that in Texas. I got a booking agent eventually. And I was working pretty well for a couple of years, touring a lot. 
and then, uh, but it was inconsistent. You know, it didn't seem like it was gonna. It just seemed kind of I don't know. It's like a stepping stone situation. And then I got a found a booking agent who was up in this part of the country, and uh, that guy was really into. And he had branched off from a bigger agency, so I felt pretty good about it. And uh, I was gonna start working the southeast and basically working this working a lot. Mm -hmm. And I'd wanted to come up and see about getting a publishing deal and all that stuff too. I didn't know anything about how that worked, but I was interested in it. So I just kind of felt like I had to move here to to grow my career, I guess, you know. I don't know if the reasons at the time, neither of them panned out at all. Like instantly, the agency fell apart right when I got here. Mm -hmm. The publishing thing, I soon realized, you know, it's mostly about uh, uh, writing for mainstream country radio, which wasn't going to be my thing. You know, publishing companies here would buy catalogs of successful songwriters from elsewhere. Like a, a lot of Texas songwriters had publishing deals here because they were writing hit songs on country radio, and you know, they had a lot of albums that had been garnering airplay. And but I wasn't really in that position, so. It ended up being just starting from scratch all over again, which uh, was kind of frustrating. You know, in hindsight, I'm glad the move was made. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to not be here now. The connections I've made here obviously have been great. You know, in hindsight, if I knew the way it was going to work, I might have waited a couple more years. You know, mm -hmm. my wife Kim and I, we'd started dating at that time, and I left. You know, it was kind of sudden. Is she from Texas? She's not from Texas, but she She's lived there at the time. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, you know, we decided, to, you know, eventually she moved up here and everything worked out. Yeah. But it could have been smoother. <laughs> Put it that way. Right. But all that said, you know, the level of songwriting here is another... Step, the you know the level of talent here and across the board musicianship across the board even songs that you don't like here necessarily those people that write them are really talented at it really good at it and you know I feel like a lot of them sort of get it like they're writing those songs for country radio mm -hmm. but they're into a lot of the same people that that you or I would be into you know yeah, that's not necessarily country yeah. you know it's like a yeah it's like, like kind a of skill like handling to the to the scene like maybe you can cook all kinds of food great but you're in a place where there's a shortage of great taco chefs mm -hmm. so you learn how to make the best tacos and you end up supporting your family by being that yes. somewhere you know yeah but you can make curry you can make all kinds of stuff yeah I think it's a lot of that yeah so and so up to uh, up to the Tennessee album um, beginning to play out here in the Nashville and filling out the Nashville scene and putting a band together to do that album with you or did you bring in friends from different places or no it was all people here uh, just started building I kind of feel like everywhere I've lived I've sort of ended up well like most songwriters probably building out this sort of circle of people you play with so I just started building that out I started with a, one guy then a couple guys you know, my friend Beth, who moved here from Austin also. She's a badass guitar player. She started playing guitar. 
Uh, God, I'm trying to remember now how it all... Yeah, I sort of built up a band. Um, I had a friend here who was a great record producer. We just started talking about making a record. Did a Kickstarter. Made a record. <laughs> yeah, in two sections. We did, we did two... We did four... I got a gig, so after after I moved here and was kind of stuck with no gig, I got a gig uh, playing guitar with this girl Natalie Stovall, who's a who's a country singer, and I got a gig playing in her band and opening up her shows. Uh, I had made a bass player friend. I brought him on that gig. Uh, then her guitar player Miguel ended up being. One of my best. Both those two guys are two of my best friends still. So, when we had time off with them, I put together the rest of a band and we cut basically an EP's worth of songs. Then I ended up. I didn't want to just put out an EP again. You know, I'd already put out a full length by that point. You know, it was gonna be my first thing I'd done here. I wanted it to be more than that. Mm -hmm. So eventually, I did the Kickstarter. And we ended up cutting another eight, seven or eight songs. And then eventually it kind of gelled into a record, full yeah. record, Tennessee, yeah. And so just from right there to first coming to Nashville, um, just got a sense of what, you know, what brought you here. Um, just since you've been here, just, I guess, the culture and uh, I guess just how many fish are in the pond, does it, does it seem like there would be a, just today, would there be a better place to be? Uh, maybe not just for you personally, or like, if you had a, if you had another go at it, mm -hmm. and you were in your early 20s, what, what town would you look for? I guess that's what I'm asking. What, what town would you move to? Uh, well, Nashville's a very viable place, you know? I mean, it would all depend what, what you were wanting to do, I guess, you know? Yeah. It really would depend what you want to do. Um, it's a very fertile ground for singer-songwriters right now. I mean, look at who's here right now. You got Aaron Lee Tashton, Jason Isbell lives here now, Margot Price, she came out of being here, mm -hmm. John Moreland lives here now, Yeah, he Sadler Vaden. Well, he came from Tulsa. Came from Tulsa, right. Set up roots here, Sadler Vaden, you know, goes on. Caleb Cottle just moved here. Mm -hmm. Of course, Todd Snyder's been a mainstay here forever. We have people that have been here along. John Prine lives here. Yeah. No shortage of talent. Great people. Um, yeah, I, you know, I mean, I, 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 if, if people, I, people should take chances in life, especially at that age, you know. It's hard to know if it's the right place for you until you go. Until you get there, yeah. So you could come here, someone could come to a place like this. And after a while, think this place is—I don't know—the music I'm doing maybe doesn't have a home here. This I, people are open to places full of musicians are open to any kind of music because musicians do not care about genre, right? You know, folk singer-songwriters love grunge music. They love hard rock. Mm -hmm. They love EDM. They might go hip hop. They love whatever is good, you know. Musicians just love music. Yeah. So, um, and there's a scene here. There's an EDM scene for sure. 
um, there's not a great jazz scene. If you're a jazz musician, probably go to look into look into look into build your career. I don't know that it would be the best place. We have one jazz club, and it opened a few years ago, yeah. and that's it. Even Austin had a few. That said, things could sprout up. A scene could revolve around what you do. You know? Yeah. I don't know. You could make the scene. So I think people should take chances, and if you go somewhere and it's not for you, look, I've done it. I, this is like my third or fourth place that I've picked mm -hmm. to go. Then you go somewhere else, and life affords you that. I don't, I don't think anyone just goes somewhere and it just works out perfectly right when they get there. Yeah. You know? It's a rarity. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of people here doing it, but that's a good thing, you know? Mm -hmm. It pushes you to be better. There's a lot of... And when there's a scene happening... The world flocks to it. Yeah. So there's a lot of labels popped up now. You got Jack White's third man moved down here. Um, yeah. I, I think he's still got his place in Detroit, but he's got the place here. He's set up here, though, now, yeah. Um, Dan Auerbach lives here. Uh, right, and he's got a, right. a Easy Eye, Easy Eye sound. Easy Eye. Roger Cook, great songwriter, lives here. I mean, there's so many. You have things now like Americana Fest, which say what you will about it. Every radio programmer, label person, booking agency, it's sort of like, well, it's not as big as South by Southwest, it's probably a good thing. They all come here. Yeah, there's a lot of connections to be made here is what I'm saying. And even the ones that aren't here yeah. come here Yeah. at least once a year. That's a good place to rub elbows. Good place to rub elbows. But and if it, gets too, if, it gets too, uh, if it gets too much so, then... People start moving elsewhere, you know. I mean, at a certain point, it's like a housing bubble. Eventually, it's going to burst. And eventually, yeah. it gets watered down. And eventually, the vitality of it, eventually, the vitality of it just starts seeping out and going, you know, elsewhere. And so, just kind of back to your story, um, Kickstarter happened. You got the seven or eight more songs uh, recorded, mm -hmm. mixed. Uh, did y'all go, you guys take it on the road? Or what did that look like? I did. Um, yeah, I put together a road band, and um, I started working that as hard as I could on the road. It's a lot of weekends, things like that. I did a radio campaign on it that I funded myself, so it was sort of limited. I had a publicity campaign. I got a lot of really strong reviews. Uh, it did really well in European Americana radio, and it it and uh, it got some good some play here but I didn't have the money to do the full radio campaign nor did I have the you know I toured as much as I could and then my wife got pregnant and touring kind of dried up at that point yeah. for the time being because uh, you know I had to make more money right. <laughs> than I was making but we did tour it and it, 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 it charted in Europe it charted on some of the charts here and I don't know, you know, how many records people make where they put everything into it and they really believe in it and it has a lot of people that believe in it and um, everything has to go right. Hey, Pally, what are you doing? Oh. <laughs> everything has to go right for things to move to the next level. Like, everything. Yeah. You can hear Camilla and Hugo? That's our neighbor kids. 
I hope everyone can hear my son, but probably not. Yeah, he's, 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 he's probably 20 feet away and through a screen. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, eventually I just had a record I loved. We made promo videos, and eventually I just had a record I loved that I sold for four years of my shows. Basically what it amounted to. Yeah. And I mean, just with... Um I mean, just life between the records, um, your son being born, I mean, that definitely had uh, some of my favorite songs off Sin and Redemption. I mean, yeah. he's mentioned. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. uh, love you too much, and That's uh, right. I want to say Virginia Morn. Sweet Virginia Morn. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, it's definitely, fatherhood has definitely impacted your songwriting. Yes, it has. <laughs> Can't argue with that. Yeah. Uh, for the better. Yeah, absolutely. And so, what, a, we had a six-year span between Sin and Redemption and Tennessee? Six-year span, yeah. And, um, like, just, just between that, just um, more time at the house and finding ways to make more money? Yep. Still uh, writing? Oh, yeah, still writing and playing a ton just in town, you know, a couple of residencies. I actually probably played more than ever, but it was all just locally and it was in Franklin a lot I had a residency in Franklin for a couple of years at Kimbrough's down there and and uh, writing a ton with, with uh, Dan Baird songs coming out on his records you know I was actually it's the thing with I'm sure any parent will tell you your productivity becomes compartmentalized but it's actually you're probably more productive or at least I was, I became more just because the time you have, you have to use more judiciously. Yeah. And all of a sudden I found, found myself getting more work. Like I said, songs on dance records coming out, people interested in working with, you know, it gave me something more to, how can I put this? You feel like, uh, I felt always that I was working as hard as I possibly could and being as good of an artist as I possibly could and putting everything I have had into it and I feel like after I had my son there was more to work with mm -hmm. even though there was less time there was more fuel I guess so I felt like my songwriting became more urgent I just feel like there's more at stake in life now and that's reflective my productivity became more urgent because there's more at stake in life and and you know I guess I became a little more focused on the business end or at least trying to put a business end together in a more <laughs> more diligent way you know that's yeah. always been a struggle for me always focused on writing and playing and not as much as other people I admire who have had a strong sense of where to take it within themselves, you know, business-wise. Sure. I always, I came from the, you know, part of it's... And I guess business-wise is like keeping it more at home and like keep it in the Franklin area and not, not trying to do so much outside. Well, that was, it was that way out of necessity. Yeah. Yeah. Again, the people I grew up uh, loving were not real self promoters. They were not self uh, 
self-made businessmen, you know. Neil Young, I don't think, had a business plan. Springsteen didn't have a business plan. Patti Smith didn't have a business plan. Pete Townsend. Mick Jagger did have a business plan. I feel like most of them... I grew up, you know, watching these, like, awesome talent, these people with these amazing talent, and people just kind of came to Hendrix. I mean, he didn't have a... You know? Yeah. And I just always, when I was younger, felt like, if I'm good enough... That'll take care of itself. Yeah. And, you know, in the 70s and the 60s, that's probably how it happened. Yeah. And a lot of those people got screwed by business hawks. And I think musicians became learned from that. But you know what? You gotta, you gotta formulate that stuff by yourself. And... I never did because I didn't see I didn't see you know I, my role models that's not how it worked yeah you know and then I think people that uh, I don't know but it's something I became more aware of you know as I went further and especially as I became a parent all of a sudden yeah all of a sudden there's like a dagger in the middle of your life separating pre and what's going to come now you know, a line. Yeah. But it's like, you know what? This is the beginning of the rest of it. And I gotta, <laughs> I gotta think about that stuff more. Yeah. I like, uh, I like what you said about, you know, just your, uh, your time usage. Um, you know, after your son was born, it, it reminds me of what uh, Sam Beam, Iron and Wine. I don't know if you're familiar with him, mm. but uh, after he became a father, um, I think it was, uh, yeah, it was on uh, World Cafe. Uh, they were talking to him about it, and he was like, you know, since just having a kid, uh, you know, having that creative time to be creative and the right has it changed? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that it comes early in the morning or late at night when everything is still. And he said, having that time is uh, is few and far between. Mm-hmm. But I know if I'm willing to get up at four in the morning, I'll have that a lot of time. You know, the only other time when I had that revelation was back in New York City. I had a structure where I had stuff going on during the day, most days of the week, starting at 7 or 8 a.m. And I realized, this was around the time where I kind of realized, I want to be a great songwriter, and I'm dedicating my life to that now. I'm not focused on guitar the way I was. I'm going to be a great songwriter. And I started getting up at 4 in the morning, Mm -hmm. and we had a little rehearsal place under the place, and I would go down there at four or five in the morning for a couple of hours every morning and I just started doing that every morning and that was the time and I realized I made I realized I could make a blueprint where I would feel artistically viable if every day I would put a certain amount of time to that and stick with it every day then the rest of the day would just kind of be the gravy even though the rest of the day was the whole day yeah but it was kind of like well, I did what I need to do to be me, and the rest is just whatever I got to do to get to the next day when I do that. Yeah. And for years and years and years, that's the way I did it. It wasn't always four in the morning, but it definitely built the discipline for it. And that time discipline had started to wane in the years before we had our son, just out of necessity, different things I had to do for work, just time that was available, living situation, um, where... 
you know, it was different times of day. Some days I wouldn't have the time. And, you know, it definitely started to shore up again yeah. in recent years. Yeah, and just a little bit more into your process uh, as it's matured over the years, uh, not just being a time. Um, do you find, like, just looking back over the years, um, just certain memories as they come back, do you find just those, you know, milestones in life as you've matured and you're able to look back, does that help those memories and looking back, or just where does some of the inspiration come from for you? You mean, do I look back at times in my life and use those as inspiration for... Yeah. Like maybe maybe it was a family trip or it was just like something that was just you handled just like totally wrong and like looking back like well I could have handled this differently or yeah now everything in my life feels like I, now I look at it as a part of the story so some memories I look back that seem like great memories at the time where I feel like I wish I'd have done that differently yeah and. Or I think, if I had done that differently, what would have happened? Or if I did it that way, if things had gone differently, yeah. what would have happened? And oftentimes I just kind of base uh, work, you know, songs on characters that maybe live those lives. You know, I sort of, I feel like, yeah, I do like to sort of take different versions of my life and have characters, people like the narrator in the song or whatever, who lived that life? Yeah, and kind of, that's what it ends up being inspired by. Yeah, okay. Like, that's something that's come over time. I don't think I used to do it that way. It yeah. used to just be much more like just looking out from my own eyes. Yeah, real tunnel vision. Yeah, but I don't know. There's only so far you can take that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's only so much to see through that lens. Your own right? life is only so interesting, and <laughs> you know. Right. Um, well, man, just to uh, talk a little bit about Center Redemption, and then uh, we'll wrap it up. Just kind of talking about what's going on now, which everything for the most part is dead, but just yeah. um, just the journey with Center Redemption, and it's been out for a year now. No, and, no, it's only been out uh, well, six four months. months. Yeah, it's Octo end of October. Yeah, almost five months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, five. Actually, yeah, about five months. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it was late last season. Yeah. Yeah. So just, uh, just since it dropping it now, just uh, for people tuning in that may not be familiar with you or your music, and mm -hmm. um, just a little bit about that album and uh, just what you had planned for this year for it. So this album, yeah, this is one where uh, I was approached by a producer who wanted to do the record. And I had a friend who ended up co-producing it, who has been working with me on and off for years, trying to trying to make connections on my behalf. And um, he connected me with Trey Sasser, who is a producer and owned a studio. And Trace was someone I knew because years and years ago in New York City, uh, I randomly saw Will Hogue play one night. I don't know, do you know Will Hogue? I do, yeah. They came through town, and Trace was the bass player. And uh, I loved that band, that iteration of the Will Hogue band. It was actually right after Dan Baird left, who I obviously did not know personally at that time. Yeah. But uh, it was a great band. And uh, so I remembered Trace. I, they came through town, I went and saw him again. 
I never, I didn't meet Trace at the time, but anyway, got to know him here. Trace wanted to make the record. I was excited about that. I had previously wanted to work with Trace, and it just wasn't to be at that time. Mm-hmm. So we got Joe Costa on board, who's a, a great mixing engineer and a great studio engineer in general. And uh, we worked hard on this record. We got amazing people to play on it. Brad Pemberton plays drums on just about all of it. And uh, the whole thing was, was very thought out. Um, we really workshopped the songs going in ahead of time. Um, I had a lot of songs to pick from because it had been so long, like I said, since I made a record. And uh, I whittled it down to songs I, I, I felt really spoke to what I wanted to be singing about now. And then when it came time to actually cutting it, we actually, we actually did our best to to make it as spontaneous, the performances as spontaneous as possible. Yeah. So it was a good blend. Dan came in and played. Leroy Powell um, and I had, <clears throat> he was in Whiskey Wolves of the West, and he's an ace. Uh, he plays on all Dave Cobb's records. Cool. Yeah, and uh, we had become friends through meeting it. There used to be a venue here called The Building that was a big scene, and it was actually a place after I'd been here for a while, I forced myself to ingratiate myself to that scene because a lot of cool writers and singers seemed to be hanging out there, and I wanted to be part of that scene, so I just started going and getting to know those guys, and I got to know Leroy, and he ended up producing a couple of songs, uh, and uh, his brother Chris played on them and we used the tracks from one of those on the record, which came out phenomenal. So it just got kind of pieced together. We got a label, Rockridge, involved in it, and they put it out, which was really great, really cool. So it's something I really, really believe in, this record, really yeah, believe man. in it. I, I, yeah, uh, I know, uh, just, just our first time meeting over in Memphis, and uh, I mean, you were sharing older songs and then songs off of Center Redemption, and just uh, you know, the lunches with David. I've really been enjoying those. Things. Thanks, man. That's those cool. Those segments <laughs> you've been doing, and I think it was on that that you were. Uh, it's, uh, it's it's a hard album for me, like to tell somebody like my favorite song off that album, because it changes almost on a weekly or daily basis as I'm sitting down with it. But for whatever reason, that week it was Long Road to Barstow. Okay. And you were sharing a little bit about the story about how a friend of yours, like Leroy, you, you had it wrote. Yeah. But like he helped you flesh it out and make it more. Right. And uh, that that just helped me to dig the song a whole lot more. It took it to a brand new level for me. Yeah. And um, I mean, I, I think those uh, those lunches with David. If y'all haven't seen that, that's on his social media. You can go back and check those out. It's a great it's a great way to sit down and get to know David and hear an unplugged version of his songs. You know. Yeah, yeah. My uh, I got a new booking agent, and she 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 came up with that idea. Yeah. I was like, you know, I want to do these because uh, the Rockridge, they got another artist named George Shingleton, who's a great country singer, and he's he does these weekly things from his Facebook page, and uh, they've been really successful for him, you know, and like just exposure wise, and they've been pushing me to do it, but I was sort of saying, you know, I. I can't really do it at night because my kid's sleeping, our house is small, if I do it outside it's dark and 
well, no, and I can sort of do them at lunch, but then it's daytime, and and then the Emily, who's helping out with booking, she said she just took that. She's like, you have to do that, and yeah. you gotta make it lunch. And you gotta start whatever you're gonna have for lunch that day. You gotta show that. Yeah. You gotta build there on that. And I was like, well, I don't know about doing a cooking show. It's not really. I love to cook, but I don't know. And she's like, just try it. It's gonna be cool. Trust me. So we did one, and it felt so silly. I just, I just kind of enjoyed it. I was like, here's my sandwich. Here's the hot sauce. I don't know. It's yeah, kind of neat. Yeah, I saw that when it's like, this is from my favorite place down here. They make right, hot sauce. Right. So <laughs> yeah. start doing it. <laughs> I love telling stories about my songs, you know. Um, if there's any song you want to know the story of, I'd be happy to share it. You know, I don't, you know, I don't like to just go on without knowing that someone's interested yeah, in it. But. Yeah, we'll, we'll use that. And so uh, just whatever two songs that you wanted to share with us here on the show, we'll take those two. Well, I, I, you know, the most personal song is I Love You Too Much. Um, probably. Because... Uh, that uh, that that kind of was written in the wake of having my son, and you know I, I never get tired enough of telling the story, um, which is just that uh, um, I, you know I felt I felt obviously overwhelmed by the love that you have when you have all of a sudden a son like or a daughter, <clears throat> um, and I felt like. A lot of people get really scared when they're having a kid, but I was so excited about it. I just wasn't scared at all. I was just like, this is what I want. Why yeah. be scared of this? Yeah. You know? And it didn't take long before I developed a real fear, but it wasn't for the fear of not being able to be a dad or all the sacrifices that I knew I was going to have to make. It was a fear of all of a sudden not having this, you know? It's like if suddenly you have something more important than anything else you've ever had, you're not really prepared for the fear of losing it. You know? Yeah. Um, and so, and a lot of people do lose it, you know? They, they, they separate from their mom, they don't get to see their kid. You know, God for, I mean, there's obviously a lot of yeah, worst case scenarios, yeah. but just, you know, people go through life having to live without something they really love. And that was something that I had never confronted before. Mm -hmm. And that song was about that. And so I called it Henry's song, but it's not like just a song saying, oh, you're my son and I love you almost too much. I mean, that's true, but it was like, I love you too much to handle the notion of not having this. Like, I don't know how to deal with that. Yeah. I don't know that I don't know. I don't think you ever learn to deal. You learn to live with it, but it's always you, you're walking around with a sidecar now in your life. Whereas yeah. before, you're just walking around with yourself. There's people you love, your parents, your wife, whatever. Yeah. But it's different when it's it's different when it's sort of like the product of you, and you're the one that has to take care of that person, and the pride you feel. And their accomplishments is more than you're ever going to feel in your own accomplishments. Yeah. And that's something I'd never confronted either. So that's why that song to me is kind of sad because I'm looking at it like someone who has to find the wherewithal and the strength to live without something that 
they love more than themselves, I guess. Yeah. So that's the story of that song. In yeah. the long run to Barstow, well, you know that story. I've told that. That's on the lunch. Yeah. You know, the title track, Sin of Redemption, is uh, kind of a story I just formulated about someone having to, well, just from people I've known and people that you've probably known and people are born into circumstances where uh, their life is a struggle from the day they're born. Yeah. From the structure of their family, from their circumstances, and you have to, you have to, you have to try to make the good choices in life, even though it's easy to make the wrong choices, and you're gonna make the wrong choices, but you kind of have to have a north star of, you know, trying to redeem your sins. <laughs> yeah. Not from a religious standpoint, I'm not, it's not about that, just about from being strong and trying to see the good. You know, the guy in that story has a sister yeah. who always got the love from his parents and he never got any because his father was resentful of him because, you know, he wanted something else out of him, and and then they had a they had a he had a, but he still loved his sister, and he still yeah loved his mother, and I think at the end of the day he still loves his dad, and like that's hard. That is hard to love people around you when you're resentful of them and yeah. What's your line? You say uh, I caught the end of my love off the end of a baseball bat. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 took, I took the brunt of my daddy's broken heart from the end of a baseball bat. Yeah, yeah. pretty brutal. But <laughs> I was listening to a lot of Chris Knight song. at the time, who's, you know, one of the most brutal songwriters in the world. And, you know, uh, that type of writing is effective to me. Like a lot of James McMurtry's another one who's from Texas. And that type of writing where you just don't pull punches in people's lives is... Effective because yeah. people live those lives, or people know people that live those yeah, lives. Yeah, really grabs you. Yeah, yeah. And you were mentioning North Star. I mean, I guess the character in that, like his sister, was that North Star. Right. And I guess, or it was like a sense of comparison. It's like I'm trying to, right, I'm trying to do right. Right. <laughs> right. And and yeah, and and she was able to go off and build her own life with the family and keep things at arm's length. Right, and for whatever reason, this guy just didn't have the facilities to succeed in that as much. Yeah, and there's the whole angle of like he, whenever he goes to see his sister, his sister's, you know, husband gets pissed off that he just showed up without announcing it because you know they have they have a kid or they have yeah. kids and you know he just he's, got he's, off on being called uncle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's a good song, man. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, man. Well, man, anything else to uh, to add or subtract, and we'll walk on out with some music. You know, I'm I'm uh, social media, yeah, way to find you and plug you. Sure, yeah. Well, uh, I'm easy to find on the social media, davidnewbold.com. Uh, the fa the Facebook is slash davidnewbold. Uh, the, uh, ins the Instagram is slash davidnewbold. Um, you know, I'm I'm. Uh, I'm looking to be out on the road, well, when this whole thing clears up, which 
you know, we no. should just we could talk about that for a minute too. I mean, yeah, it's it, honestly it's it's a nice little detour talking about the way life has been normally and the way it'll hopefully be again. But you know, we're in a lockdown right now of unparalleled proportions, and you know, I don't know when people are going to be out touring again. I'm looking to. I'm making the plans with the with the booking and. Uh, I'm talking to people about planning, you know, from a management standpoint, planning what we're going to do in the next year and this year. But gosh, it's hard to even plan because I'm telling you, I mean, March is March is gone. Uh, April, like all I've seen for you know a lot of the singer songwriters and bands that I follow, it's TVD or it's already out. May is halfway out, and so I mean, what do, what do you do? You can't really. I mean, what yeah. do you do? Yeah, I mean. You know, I think everybody, everybody is just flailing, trying to make predictions. But I mean, based on what I've seen, I think I think the summer. I think as far as touring, I think I think the summer is probably out. I think fall is anybody's guess. It really depends on how we as a society act in the next several weeks, um, with regards to the distancing and trying to keep it. Keep the spread minimal, but in, you know, until there's a cure, which is not in, well into next year, right. you know, I don't think it's. I think it's going to be a part of our lives till then. So, you know, but I was talking to my wife about this last night, and I think one silver lining is that we're really all going to see the creativity that humans are capable of because, you know, in all fields. How, what are people going to do now? You got to do something, you know. You know, everyone's got to find a way to not be homeless and not not pay the bills and not raise their kids. And I mean, you know, what? In two weeks, all of a sudden, there's been extremely creative live streaming avenues people are coming up with. They have. You know, that's cool for now. That's definitely seems to be working for some people. I'm st I'm actually doing one tonight on a platform called Zoom with 15 other artists and we're all doing 15 minute segments and you know had the virtual tip jar and it, well this one's got a five dollar oh, okay. it's a five dollar thing and that gets split between half between the artists and half between businesses or charities of their choice yeah the virtual tip jars I mean I think it's going to be a lot of that stuff for now but I think you know that's not people are going to People are going to come up with new ways, really creative ways. Um, and and when this is all over, I think it's an industry that will have even more avenues for people to succeed because we're going to come up with them because we have to. Yeah. You know? <clears throat> so that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be out uh, trying to find my way in this, and I got people helping that we're going to try to come up with ways and then hopefully hopefully by the fall I'll be out on the road more taking this album I mean it's still it's still a new record and I mean everybody's just I mean every every product you know it's like everything's on hold but I think all records that come out I think a lot of people are going to be working records that aren't brand new by the time they're able to get out and tour again because it's the first time they're going to be able to take them to places other than where they live, mm -hmm. other than via media, social media. Yeah. 
But yeah. playing live is playing live is always going to be the thing because that's the way, you know. That's that's the way that you fall in love with somebody is you go see them, you like the records, you can fall in love with a record. But I mean, you go see one someone live and make the connection, and you're a fan for life. Yeah. And I don't see how that's going to change. Right. And I don't. I mean, it could. I could see it possibly happen over a live stream. I don't, though. You know. Like to it, a degree. It's it's a way for me to connect with you as a fan already. It's a way to like during this time, you know, it's like okay, I can still. He's not out, you know, in Alabama mm. or Mississippi playing tonight, but I can see him on via Facebook or Zoom. You know? you know, when I lived in Austin, I used to go almost every week to the Continental Club on Wednesday nights and see John D. Graham and James McMurtry. And I was never sick of it because it was in the moment every time. And it was a lot of the same songs every week, but it just got better. And now I watch those guys on live stream and it's satisfying, but I think, man, I really wish I was seeing them in a venue. Yeah. I don't think anyone's gonna ever go see a band in a venue and think, this is really cool, but I really wish I was at home watching it on my phone. Right. You know? Right. You're not gonna have, but I mean, it's the best means that you can do right now with social distances. And so like, the main thing that I've been pushing um, with uh, listeners is the best way that you can do right now for those musicians and bands and artists that you love is uh, if they have merchandise if they have albums mm-hmm. whatever they have buy it mm-hmm. what, whatever you have that whatever they have that you like support them that's the truth you know but that's that's and, and uh, try to go around the label like go right. straight to them if mm-hmm. you can yeah and all my albums are on my website you can buy them directly um Sin of Redemption is the only one with any other outlet that's been put out by anyone other than myself but you know that's a lot to ask of people now too because no one knows where their income's coming from right so you know I encourage people to support their artists but I encourage people to support their families you know but one thing you can do for free if you can't buy product or if you can now but in two months you can't is stream them and share it with your friends. Because if it goes on playlists, you know, numbers mean a lot. It used to be sales numbers meant a lot, now streaming numbers mean a lot, mm-hmm. you know. It's all about bridging the gap until, until people can work more and people can buy more and people can spend more and people can play out more, and, mm-hmm. you know. But listening to music is free, telling your friends about it's free, sharing it on, Playlists and Spotify is essentially free. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if you can support it and buy people's merchandise, buy their T-shirts, buy their records, that's obviously the best. That's obviously the best thing you can do right now. Right. But you know, as you can. <laughs> yeah, times is hard right now. Yeah. Well, brother, you yeah. ready to play a song? I'd love to, man. Uh, 1958 or 59 the serial number was traced to one of those two years <laughs> I've had it for I bought this in New York not long before I moved to Austin so I've had it for I've had it for uh, uh, probably 
only 20 years now. If I ever lost this, I'd probably write another song like I Love You Too Much. <laughs> Alright, well this is called Love You Too Much. I think I love you too much I paint your face With a needle and brush I walk the streets All alone at dusk I think I love you too much I don't know what I'm gonna do I can't let go It's just the truth Find your way in a world untrue I don't know what I'm gonna do I didn't know how anyone could Talk so loud and not be understood Hold so tight it don't do no good I didn't know how anyone there ain't nobody who wants to walk on their own Once their heart's been taken to see I've got these shoes and the water's close Your heart still beats in time with me I think I'm gonna take a long ride The day that you appeared in front of my eyes I'm gonna take a long
thanks for having me on your podcast and coming all the way up here for it. Yeah, man. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.